We the People listeners, it's time for another thrilling edition of Ask Jeff on Wednesday, August 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and live on Facebook. I'll answer your questions about different tools and approaches for constitutional interpretation. You've asked and we've responded and we are going to discuss how to interpret the Constitution. You can send me questions in advance on social media using the hashtag AskJeffNCC or submit questions anonymously at blog.constitutioncenter.org. And don't forget to join us live on Facebook on August 24th to join the conversation. Look forward very much to hearing from you. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we examine a central constitutional question, and that is the scope of the right to vote in America. After the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1860, many states used poll taxes, literacy tests, and other means to disenfranchise African Americans. A century later, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 provided a variety of ways for the federal government and federal courts to protect the right to vote. And today we are engaged in a great national debate about the scope of the Voting Rights Act and constitutional protections for the right to vote. Uh, in recent weeks, there have been a series of important decisions about the scope of the right to vote, and joining me to discuss them and the constitutional issues they raise are two of America's leading experts on the front lines of the debate. Hans von Spakovsky is manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Wendy Weiser is director of the Democracy Project at the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. Hans, Wendy, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Wendy, there have been a series of uh, decisions uh, from various courts recently involving the scope of the right to vote uh, in states ranging from North Carolina to Texas and Wisconsin and more. Give us the big picture about what these courts are holding and what is the constitutional backdrop against which these decisions are coming down. Absolutely. There's really been a remarkable wave of court decisions striking down or softening voting restrictions across the country over the last two weeks. We've seen um, decision, uh, decisions um, softening voter ID laws coming out of Texas, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and um, um, and North Dakota. We've seen um, decisions cut, um, striking down cutbacks on voter registration coming out of Kansas and North Carolina and Ohio and Wisconsin. And we've seen some other decisions coming out of um, uh, uh, on other um, voting restrictions coming out of Michigan and Ohio. Um, in most of these cases, the decisions were based on a court finding that the laws were discriminatory, that they, um, that they made it harder for African Americans, Latinos, or Native Americans, in the case of North Dakota, to participate, um, and that that was unjustified, um, that that burden was unjustified. And it was a real sharp judicial rebuke to the uh, a broader legislative push that we've seen across the country in recent years to make voting harder. Thank you so much for that introduction. Hans, uh, what would you add to Wendy's overview and what more would you say uh, descriptively about what courts have been holding in the past couple of weeks? 
Well, I mean, she's given a, a pretty good uh, description of what's going on. I, I would disagree that uh, voter ID is a, a voting restriction. Uh, the evidence shows that that's not the case. And it's also important to point out that these, these recent wave of cases, uh, and some of them certainly um, don't follow the um, Supreme Court precedent on this. And what I mean by that is in 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, upheld Indiana's photo ID law, uh, said it was perfectly constitutional. Um, it was a six to three decision written by Justice John Paul Stevens, who was not generally known as a very conservative uh, judge. And what's important about that case is that, um, you know, the court looked at uh, the supposed burden of having to get an ID, and they basically said that the, the inconvenience of making a trip uh, to the Department of Voter Vehicles, gathering the required documents, posing for a photograph, doesn't qualify as a substantial burden on the right to vote or even represent a significant increase over the usual burdens of voting. And uh, similarly, um, uh, Georgia's voter ID law uh, was upheld also back in the mid-2000s, was in effect for the first time in 2008 in the election there. It survived challenges both uh, constitutionally and under the Voting Rights Act, as the court said, it was not discriminatory. And, and most importantly, look, we've now got turnout data from those states uh, for these laws being in place for uh, eight years, and the turnout data does not support any claim that it depresses uh, turnout or keeps people out of the polls. Great. Thanks so much for that. Well, the debate is well joined. Uh, Wendy, as Han said, the Supreme Court in 2008 upheld a voter ID law, and yet on July 29th, the three-judge panel uh, of the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina overturned North Carolina's voter ID law, finding that it was passed with discriminatory intent. Uh, tell us more about why you think that that decision was correct and what the court's reasoning was. Absolutely. And, and before I do so, just I, I wanted to make a quick note about the Supreme Court's decision upholding the Indiana case. Um, in every single one of the recent court cases considering the, this new wave of strict photo ID laws that were passed across the country, um, the state raised the Supreme Court's decision um, in the Crawford case and the Indiana case um, to justify its, um, uh, its enactment. And in every single case, the court said, you know, that's not relevant here. It's a different law. And in fact, the claim was different. In Indiana, um, the, the claim was whether or not the entire voter ID law should be struck down to every single person in the state, regardless of whether they have ID, um, based on the constitutional rights to vote. Um, in most of these other cases, the claims are whether these very particular ID laws were um, discriminatory, were, um, and you know, in some cases they were found to be um, to, uh, to have been intentionally so, which wasn't even an issue in the Crawford case. And the court found a lot of other differences between the ID laws that are being challenged now and in the Indiana case. And I think it's important to have a little bit of perspective of what's going on now. What the courts are looking at is not to be question of voter ID in general, should states be um, allowed to require ID of its voters, but very particular restrictive voter ID laws that the courts, when they look behind the curtain and how they're being implemented, what they're specifically requiring, um, find that these particular laws are not justified. 
And so I'll start with the North Carolina law. And in, in North Carolina, and actually the North Carolina case um, involved both a challenge to a voter ID requirement but a challenge to a range of other voting requirements, cutbacks to early voting, elimination of same-day voter registration, pre-registration of 16- and 17-year-olds, um, changes to provisional voting. So it was a range of different cutbacks the state had um, over time expanded voting access and then in one fell swoop um, passed a very sweeping law that, that went backwards um, a long way. And what the court found in that case was the entire this entire law was passed for the purpose, the express purpose of discriminating against African American voters in the state. And it, and, and it actually um, uh, explained that the provisions target African Americans with almost surgical precision. And the big picture, and, and what the, the the reason why the court um, came to this conclusion is it found that um, after years of um, preclearance and voting access expansion, African Americans in North Carolina had had reached voting parity. They were poised to act as a major electoral force in the state, and then immediately after the Supreme Court um, decided in um, Shelby County um, to. Um, remove the core protection of the Voting Rights Act under which the state had to get um, approval of its voting requirements, a party leader immediately announced that it was going to move forward with a full omnibus voting bill that wasn't at all in the legislature. And before doing so, the legislature had requested data by race um, um, of the use of various voting practices and then introduced a bill that actually um, restricted voting and registration in five different ways, all of which disproportionately harmed African Americans, all of which had not been discussed before, did so in a, a real rush, um, and did so in the context of a very um, uh, polarized voting environment and in an environment where there was um, a, a whole range of um, a, 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 a recent broad history of voting laws that had been found discriminatory or that had been objected to by the Department of Justice. So with all of those factors together, the court looked at um, the, the, the full circumstances that said that the that the law was passed with the purpose, the express purpose of discriminating against African-American voters in the state. And so it didn't really look to the kinds of things that um, uh, Mr. Von Spakovsky was talking about in the Crawford case, because um, you know, whether or not these kinds of provisions would be reasonable. Otherwise, um, the, the court said it's intolerable to allow a law that is passed for the purpose of discriminating against minority voters to stand. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Hans, uh, Wendy has just said a difference between the North Carolina case and Crawford is that the court here found discriminatory intent. What is your response and why do you think the North Carolina case was wrongly decided? Well, I have to admit that uh, when I was reading the majority opinion, I was just shaking my head at some of the claims that were made that were factually in, in, incorrect and just wrong. And I'll give an example of what I mean. Um, uh, uh, critics and, and the court try to make this big deal about this voter ID law suddenly being passed in 2013 after the Shelby County decision and after Republicans took over the legislature. They totally ignored the history of the state legislature and the fact that in 2003 uh, a voter ID bill was introduced. It didn't pass. Same thing happened in 2005, 2007, 2009, 2011, uh, uh, the point is, the, the Republicans actually started trying to pass a voter ID law a long time ago, uh, were unsuccessful in doing it until 2013. 
I also just shook my head at the claim that by requesting racial data on what the effect might be of a voter ID law, that was evidence of a discriminatory purpose. I spent four years at the U.S. Justice Department as, as the voting rights counsel there, and uh, all of the states that were under Section 5 and, and subject to possible Section 2 lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act uh, routinely got that information any time they were going to pass a voting law to, to try to in, make sure that, in fact, uh, a law was not going to be discriminatory. And, in fact, you know, if we had been, that is the Justice Department, had been reviewing something the legislature had done and they had not asked for that information, uh, the Justice Department would have looked very critically at that uh, as, as an evidence that they didn't even consider what the results might be. I, I should point out, by the way, that um, this North Carolina decision actually conflicts directly with another case. And what I mean by that is the, the North Carolina voter ID law, uh, in addition to providing a free ID to anyone who doesn't have one, also put in an amendment to the law that said, if you show up at a polling place without an ID, if you sign a form that says you had a reasonable impediment that kept you from getting an ID, you still get to vote. North Carolina copied that from the South Carolina voter ID law, that that law has this exact same reasonable impediment exception, that law was upheld as constitutional and not discriminatory by a three-judge panel that included a Fourth Circuit judge in 2012. So it's kind of odd for the, this, the Fourth Circuit to hold this as being somehow discriminatory when the exact same provision was upheld uh, in the South Carolina law, and the law has now been in place uh, for a number of elections without any of the kind of problems people assert uh, will occur with it. Thanks for that. Uh, well, Wendy, any, yes, any final, if you could, Wendy, any final thoughts on North Carolina and why yeah, the court found, and, and found that the law uh, targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision, and then after you've, well, uh, go ahead, respond on North Carolina, and maybe Hans will want to take one more beat. Right. I, I just wanted to clarify that the, that the court actually was aware that the, the state had mitigated the law and passed um, this and introduced a, a reasonable um, uh, affidavit um, exception for people who couldn't um, get ID. And the court didn't consider the impact of that new one because what the court looked at was not just the voter ID provision in isolation, but the entire legislative package. And while the court had acknowledged that the legislature had been considering a more moderate voter ID provision and had been moving slowly. The day after Shelby County, the law became an omnibus bill with five other voting restrictions attached to it, the precise voting restrictions that they had asked data for beforehand. Um, and, and that passed with a much stricter photo ID requirement without this. During the course of litigation, the um, this um, law was softened by the legislature with this new provision. The court didn't consider that. The court said the entire law was tainted by discriminatory intent and that this new mitigating um, uh, enactment didn't eliminate that, that it, it had to do a do-over. And so uh, just to clarify, that wasn't it, the court didn't ignore that. Um, it, it was looking at a different um, part of the law. Hans, last word on North Carolina. I think I'll also ask you, how do you think the U.S. Supreme Court would decide the North Carolina case if it decided to hear it? Would it be split 4-4 split or, or some other uh, lineup? Right. Um, 
Look, the district court opinion which upheld the law was 500, almost 500 pages. I've never seen such a lengthy opinion. The district court judge went into in-depth detail of the facts surrounding the passage of the law. The judge who did the actual fact-finding looked at the actual evidence, uh, found that the law was not discriminatory in intent, and it certainly did not not have a discriminatory purpose. What, what has been left out in this discussion is the fact that the law has actually been in place since 2014. So we actually know the effect of these reforms on uh, elections in the state. In the 2014 general election, uh, that election saw the smallest white African-American turnout disparity in any midterm election from 2002 to 2014. In the 2014 primary, black turnout increased by almost 30% over the 2010 midterm election when these provisions weren't in place. The turnout of white voters only went up about 14%. All of the turnout data in the state put a lie to the claim that this was going to depress turnout. And, And I think it's important to mention, and this is not and uh, and I've not really seen this reference much, Um, the U.S. Justice Department actually brought in an expert who claimed that uh, black residents of the state would not be able to register and vote because they were, quote-unquote, less sophisticated than other voters, particularly white voters. That was one of the most patronizingly racist statements I I have ever heard in court testimony. Uh, And Black, uh, black voters of the state proved that this expert was wrong by this huge increase in turnout in the 2014 election. Um, what will happen at the court today? Well, I think actually many of these judges, um, such as the uh, appointees of the Fourth Circuit panel, I, I think they are frankly gaming the system. And the reason they're gaming the system is that the 6-3 majority that upheld Indiana's photo ID law, two of those judges are gone. Justice John Paul Stevens retired. Uh, Justice Scalia unfortunately passed away. Uh, So I suspect that any ID law getting to the Supreme Court right now, uh, you're going to get a 4-4 split, uh, and that means that the appeals court decisions uh, will be upheld. Very interesting. Wendy, let's turn to Texas. On July 20th in the VZ case, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled that Texas's voter ID law had a discriminatory impact on African-American voters. It did not find discriminatory intent, as in North Carolina. And there have been some recent developments. On August 3rd, there was a proposed settlement reached where Texas voters with one of valid ID cards would have to show it before casting ballots, and those without the IDs could still vote if they had a birth certificate or registration or so forth. Tell us about the Texas case. How did its reasoning differ from the North Carolina case, and what's the current state of play in Texas? Absolutely. And I should acknowledge that the Brennan Center um, does represent some of the plaintiffs in the Texas case. Um, And so we are, in fact, among the litigants. And there was a new development today in that the district court entered an order um, approving of that um, interim uh, settlement of that voters without government-issued photo ID um, and uh, for whom that would be difficult for them to obtain will be able to cast a regular ballot this November um, after signing an affidavit and providing another um, uh, much broader array of identification. So uh, I think that that's been a, a very positive development. Um, so the, the Texas case also 
focused on um, discrimination. The court did not reach, but while the case involved, uh, also raised claims under the right to vote, the um, issue in the Crawford, um, Indiana voter ID case, the court did not reach that. Um, it, it found that the law um, um, had a discriminatory result, um, a discriminatory impact on African-American and Latino voters in the state, and that was not justified, um, and that was because of their race. Um, I do want to clarify that while the court um, did not um, uh, uh, um, find a discriminatory intent, um, the lower court did find that the Texas law was passed um, for the purpose of discriminating against minority voters and the um, circuit court, and this is the, the very conservative Fifth Circuit, Sangam Bank was the full circuit, actually found um, it remanded to the district court to reconsider intent. It didn't reverse that. And it said specifically that the record contained evidence that could support a finding of discriminatory intent, and it went at great length to show what evidence there was in the record, but it sent it back to the district court to make that determination in the first instance. So at this point, there are three courts across the country that have found that these laws are passed for the purpose of discriminating against minority voters, and one of the Wisconsin courts found the same thing um, as it related to the cutback on early voting um, and the souls to the polls drive like they had in North Carolina. Um, but back to the Texas case, um, the the court found um, specifically that there were um, that the law um, disproportionately harmed um, African American and Latino voters. That there are six hundred and eight thousand registered voters across um, the state of Texas who did not have um, ID that would be acceptable for voting in, in the state of Texas under the the very strict photo ID laws that the state passed, and that African Americans and Latino were far more likely to lack those IDs. And in fact, they were three, for Latinos they were three times more likely to, than white voters to lack IDs. African Americans were two and a half times more likely. So it was a very big disparity. And that there was um, enormous burdens um, that um, would be difficult to overcome for many of those voters to obtain ID. They, um, they, the state had, um, as it is required under the Constitution, um, made a provision for free IDs, but that was not well implemented, and very few people obtained it or could obtain it. The cost of underlying documents was too great. The distance to ID issuing offices was too great. So it was a very the court found that it was very burdensome. And it found that that burden was, in fact, because of race, and there was a range of um, evidence that the court looked at to show um, why um, race, um, exp- why this was racially discriminatory. Um, the court did not strike down the whole voter ID law. And this is, um, I think, what's at issue in a lot of the cases. Um, what the, um, if the court found, if, if there if the law was found to be intentionally discriminatory, then the entire law could be blocked. But because the court found that um, the um, damage was um, to um, was to the discriminatory effect um, on the people who don't have IDs, it ordered a remedy that would um, allow those voters who have ID to show that ID, but that the remedy had to be tailored to rectify the damage and the discriminatory effect only on those voters who don't have that ID. And that's what's going on in a lot of the cases right now in Texas, in Wisconsin, um, you know, really sort of tailoring a remedy to the harms that the court has found, you know, so that those who do have ID can still be required to show ID, but that others, and, you know, in some cases, and here it's hundreds of thousands of others, um, will not be deprived of the ability to vote um, because they don't have that ID. 
Thanks so much for that. Hans, in a piece uh, written with John Fund in the Wall Street Journal, Voter ID and the Real Threat to Democracy, you sympathetically cited Judge Edith Jones's dissent in the Texas case, which wrote that the majority opinion misconstrues the law, misapplies the facts, and raises serious constitutional questions. Why do you agree with Judge Jones, and what do you think of the settlement that the judge has just approved in the Texas case? Uh, well, let me make three points about this. I mean, one, um, you know, again, you know, you have this constant claim uh, uh, that voters are disenfranchised by this law. Uh, again, this law has been in place uh, in elections there. It was in place in 2013 in state elections. It was in place in 2014. And, you know, it's important to note that uh, something that uh, Judge Edith Jones and four, four of the other judges noted in their dissent, which was despite extraordinary efforts to find voters disenfranchised by the law, in other words, people who were unable to vote for it, neither the Justice Department nor any of the plaintiffs in the case could come up with a single individual. Also, they pointed out that there was, this was a multi-thousand-page record. In fact, the district court judge gave uh, the plaintiffs really unprecedented access to the state legislators and all their communications. And uh, again, the dissenting judges point out that there wasn't a trace uh, much less a legitimate inference of any racial bias by uh, any of the uh, legislators in passing this. The, the, the third and final point I would make is, again, look, we've got turnout data. We've got turnout data from the, con the constitutional state election in 2013. From 2014, uh, if you look at that turnout data, I actually wrote a report for the Heritage Foundation where I did that. Uh, there is no evidence whatsoever that it in any way uh, depressed turnout or kept people from the polls, which may be the main reason why the plaintiffs failed to present any turnout data uh, in, the, in the case. Um, the settlement today basically says that um, uh, anyone who doesn't uh, have one of the acceptable IDs under the statute will still be able to vote if they do two things. They can present uh, anything from a current utility bill, a bank statement, a government check, a paycheck, or any other government document um, that, that has their name and address on it. And they sign a form, just like in North Carolina, just like in South Carolina, that says, I had a reasonable impediment that kept me from getting um, uh, uh, an ID, and, and, and they're going to be able to vote. I, I think that's probably the best deal that Texas could get under the circumstances because the district court judge showed quite a bias, I believe, um, against voter ID. I mean, one of the reasons she apparently said that uh, she thought there was intentional discrimination was because she didn't believe there was any rational reason to pass a voter ID law other than to discriminate, which is obviously wrong. She, she also claimed that the law was a poll tax, which was thrown out by uh, the Fifth Circuit because it's hard to call um, an ID law that provides a free ID a, a, a poll tax. Thank you for that. Uh, Wendy, help us understand the legal theory under which the Texas, North Carolina, and Wisconsin cases are decided. We've talked uh, in passing about the Shelby County case, which uh, struck down the part of the Voting Rights Act which requires so-called covered jurisdictions to get approval from the federal government before they can change their voting practices in ways that may abridge the right to vote. Uh, but uh, th And the court ruled that uh, uh, the preclearance requirement uh, was unconstitutional. 
but uh, as defined in Section 4. But Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which forbids discrimination in voting, was left intact, and that allows uh, plaintiffs to say that based on a totality of the circumstances, policies result in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote without proving discriminatory intent. Are these cases decided under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, or is there some other theory? And give us a sense of the legal theories behind them. Yeah, in, in most of the cases that we've been talking about today have been decided under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is the nationwide protection against voting discrimination. Um, it is not as strong a protection as Section 5 was, and Texas provides a really good example of that. Um, so far, um, you know, three federal courts have found this Texas ID law discriminatory. The law was actually passed for the first time in 2011, while Section 5 was still in effect. Um, and it didn't go into effect in the 2012 election because it was blocked under Section 5, both by a three-judge court, which found that the state hadn't shown it wasn't discriminatory, and by the Department of Justice, which also wasn't persuaded by the Texas's um, uh, argument that this would not discriminate. Um, but then right after, in fact, the very same day, the Supreme Court issued the Shelby County decision, Texas started implementing the law. It has been in place through now um, a federal election, um, a federal primary election, more than four statewide elections, multiple local elections, um, a law, and has been since found discriminatory under Section 2, under the other provision of the Voting Rights Act, both by the District Court and by now Circuit Court. And so today's um, just recently is the first time that um, Texans have gotten relief from this voting requirement that was not discriminatory. So it's a real sea change. Beforehand, the law would not have gone into effect unless um, it was approved as not discriminatory. Now the law's been in effect, keeping people from voting for years until we finally reach resolution, because Section 2 takes a long time to litigate. And, you know, you accurately described the standard under Section 2, but there's a, it's a very heavy lift. You have to show not only that the law um, has the effect, uh, the, um, that it has a discriminatory impact, that it harms minority voters more than it does other voters, but that looking at all the circumstances, the history of discrimination in the state, racially polarized voting, um, the economic and social circumstances, that it's fair to say that this is because of race, that race explains um, you know, what's going on here and that it was unfairly discriminatory. Um, and, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of years, and so now we're it's great that we're getting relief, but there is, um, uh, you know, a, a dark cloud to the silver lining, and that this, 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 these other elections that have gone forward with the discriminatory law in place can't be redone. Uh, Hans, tell, tell us why you think that these courts are misconstruing Section 2. After the Shelby County decision, more than 18 states passed laws to impose restrictions on voter access to the ballots, <clears throat> and some progressive critics of Shelby County predicted that that would mean the end of uh, challenges to these restrictions. And yet, as we've been discussing, state courts now seem, or rather, uh, federal appellate courts seem to be striking down these provisions under Section 2. Do you think they're misconstruing Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? And how do you think Section 2 should be properly interpreted? Uh, yeah, I do think they're misconstruing the law. And, and again, I, I, would, uh, I would argue with what you're calling voting restrictions. And, and I'll give you a quick example of what I mean. Um, Look, uh, North Carolina had put in same-day registration, which means, you know, you can register and, and vote on the same day. That, that was relatively recently. When they reformed the laws, they got rid of that. Uh, saying that that is a voting restriction is a little tough when the vast majority of states, 
do not allow same-day registration and have never allowed same-day registration. Uh, only about a dozen states do that. The, the traditional uh, rule is that you've got to register ahead of the election, and the reason for that is so that election officials can actually verify the accuracy of your voter registration form. So saying that that's a voting restriction when, in fact, it's unusual, I, you know, I don't think it is fair. Um, I think I think what's going on, first of all, I should say, Shelby County was correctly decided. Um, they, the court said in that case, and, and this was the problem, when, when Congress renewed it back in 2006, they renewed it based on 45-year-old data. In other words, the states that were still covered were covered based on registration and turnout data, data from the 1964, 1968, and 1972 presidential elections. Uh, that, that was as if in 1965, um, uh, when they passed the law, uh, they, they had decided that the states that would be covered would be based on the Hoover-Roosevelt election in the early 1930s. That, that's how it didn't make sense. Uh, if they were going to pass, re- renew the statute, it needed to be pa- based on current data. And the reason Congress didn't update the formula to include uh, uh, registration or turnout data for more recent elections, like uh, the 2000 uh, or 2004 elections, was because if they had... None of the states covered under Section 5 would have remained covered because conditions uh, there had not only improved but were better than parts of the state not covered by Section Section 5 with higher registration and turnout rates by uh, black voters, uh, often, in fact, um, uh, not only equal to but exceeding that of, of white voters, which is the current situation in North Carolina, by the way. Um, Section 2 it has, a, it has a good legal standard, one that requires you to uh, really show that um, a discriminatory practice you know, results in unequal treatment. Um, it's a complicated law. Uh, it does have a totality of the circumstances analysis, which, which the Senate Judiciary Committee that passed uh, the statute said requires you to look at a whole series of factors. Um, I think, unfortunately, what's happening is Judges are being pushed by challengers and plaintiffs to convert the Section 2 legal standard to the old Section 5 legal standard. The Section 5 legal standard uh, that that ended with the Shelby County case was a much less uh, rigorous legal standard. It was called retrogression. Uh, It was much, much easier to meet. In fact, it did something that was very unusual in American jurisprudence, which is it reversed the standard of proof. You know, we, we believe fundamentally under uh, due process in the 14th Amendment that the government has to prove a case against you. You don't have to prove your innocence. Uh, Section 5 actually reversed that. Uh, jurisdictions had to prove their innocence in order to pass it. And uh, if you want a great example of how the Justice Department got things wrong, I'd refer you back to that South Carolina case I was talking about. They refused to give preclearance to South Carolina's voter ID law. South Carolina went to court. A three-judge court agreed with South Carolina, said the Justice Department's view was wrong, and the law has been in place now for a number of years in elections, and uh, none of the discriminatory results that they claimed would happen have happened. Thanks for that. We just, Wendy, please, please, please do respond uh, and you know tell us why you think Shelby County was wrongly decided and 
respond to whatever you think appropriate, including Hans's claim that judges are now using Section 2 to do the work that used to be done by, by Section 5. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, Section 2 is um, not, um, you know, can't be used to do the work of Section 5, unfortunately. But if I wanted to back up first, I think that there was a, a misstatement of what happened in the South Carolina case. It is true that the Department of Justice initially um, did not pre-clear the ID requirement in South Carolina because the state had not made plans to implement this um, exception, this process for voters who don't have ID, what they call the reasonable impediment um, process. Um, and during the course of the litigation before the three-judge court, um, the, um, the, the state um, uh, adopted a more robust um, articulation of what it intended to do, in part in response to skepticism by the court, and then the court and the Department of Justice both um, agreed that the law should be pre-cleared with this new, more robust, reasonable impediment provision. So, in fact, Section 5 helped to um, push the state to be a little bit more thoughtful about how it implemented its ID requirements so as not to have a discriminatory result. And that's, in fact, working as it should have. That's not a sign that it wasn't working. That's a sign that it was working. The state got what it wants, a um, you know a stronger voter ID requirement, and it had to do so in a way that was um, minimizing discriminatory results um, in that state. And so that that's um, what happened in um, South Carolina. And again, um, and, and I do agree that with um, uh, Mr. Von Spakovsky that Section 5 did reverse the presumption. The law was presumed to, um, the, the state couldn't presume to be go forward with a new voting change if they had the history of discrimination. Um, it needed to get um, a very, go through a very quick and um, straightforward process, but to get approval before it went into place. And that was very strong measures that um, Congress put in place thinking it was necessary because the voting was so important, because the history of race discrimination was so pernicious, and because any other measures that were nationwide were um, ineffective in stopping the sort of constant um, moving target of voting restriction that was keeping African Americans and other minorities from being able to fully participate. That it was like, let's have an easy check in advance. We're not going to let you. It's a suspicious um, to change your voting laws so frequently without a check. So that that is um, um, it's an accurate um, characterization. Um, the Congress um, in Shelby County, it is true that they relied on 1970, a formula referencing 1972 data. But Congress actually looked at a lot of contemporary evidence of voting discrimination. They looked at which states actually met that formula, which states were covered, and made very detailed findings in 10,000 pages um, in 2006 and had many, many hearings um, that led to those pages that there was still strong evidence of voting discrimination in those states and those same states that were covered um, ought to continue to be covered. And it didn't update the formula to use more um, current um, data points, but it actually included all those data points in its findings that those specific states should be covered. So, you know, from my perspective, it was a very formalistic decision that, um, that um, overly um, emphasized this very formal fact and actually been reversed what Congress really intended to do was to, in fact, cover a very specific state of states that they found made very detailed findings, as they were entitled to do, had um, was, was still had problems with discrimination. 
So that was um, an unfortunate decision. I actually think we've seen the negative impact since the Shelby County decision um, to the extent that anybody thought that um, there wasn't voting discrimination. We've now had um, you know, almost a dozen courts um, find that laws um, passed um, have been um, passed um, for the purpose or result of discriminating against minority voters. Um, since Shelby, seven states that were previously covered adopted or implemented new voting restrictions that are still in place. There were more that have since been that adopted some that were since been reversed. So it's it's had a very swift and immediate impact. And while it's true that in a number of those states we've seen some gains in African American political participation and participation by other minorities, though African Americans had the the biggest gains, um, especially um, in the elections in which um, President Obama was on the ballot. Um, the, that um, uh, Justice Ginsburg gave a very eloquent response to that: is if you're in a um, if you're in a rainstorm and you're not getting wet, that's not a time to throw away your umbrella. Those gains can be attributable to the good that Section 5 was doing. Thanks for that. Uh, One more round of questions and then uh, closing arguments. Uh, Hans, uh, Wendy referred to the negative effect of these voter ID laws in practice. What do you think that the, uh, if if these voter ID laws are allowed to go into effect, uh, will they have uh, an influence in the 2016 presidential election or not? Uh, they won't. Um, I, I, I could give you, I can give you turnout data from prior elections in uh, all the states that have put in voter ID laws and had them in effect for years. Um, you, in essence, uh, the challengers to these have basically dropped claims that it will suppress vote uh, in terms of turnout because all the data shows that it doesn't do that. Um, you know, these other supposed restrictions. I mean, I just have to keep keep saying, um, look, we didn't even talk about this, but but we had a, a recent decision in Ohio um, that said that reducing the number of early voting days from 35 days to 29 days uh, was a violation of the law. That it was discriminatory. Uh, that that is that is an absurd that is an absurd decision. Um, there's no right to early voting uh, in this country. You have a vote that you have a right to vote on election day. Early voting is this new phenomenon that that states have started putting in. Uh, the, Texas was the first state to put it in in the late 1980s, and um, the average number of early of, uh, days of voting that you get across the country is in the mid-teens. To say that uh, if you only have 29 days of early voting instead of 35, which still puts Ohio uh, in the top 10 states of the most early voting, that's somehow discriminatory when there are uh, a dozen states that don't have early voting at all. And to have federal courts saying, well, uh, 10 days of early voting is enough, 20 days, well, maybe that's enough, 30 days, yeah, no, that's okay, that that's somehow a violation of the Constitution. It is that that's just absurd. That's a decision to be made by uh, state legislatures. And if they want to have no early voting days at all, like the state of New York, or if they want to have uh, 35 days of early voting or 29, the way o- Ohio changed it, that's up to them. That that is not a that is not a judi- should not be a judicial decision. And the idea that it's somehow unconstitutional to only have a certain number of early voting days, I I, I mean, I just don't think logically you can. You can support that. 
Thanks for that. Uh, uh, Wendy, uh, what do you think that if these uh, early voting laws uh, and voter ID laws are allowed to go into effect, they will have an effect on the 2016 presidential election? No, I, I think they'd absolutely have an effect, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the data. I do want to um, address the, the point um, that um, Mr. Spakovsky claimed that there's no right to early voting, and I think that that's conflating two different kinds of legal claims. I want to clarify that. Um, um, under the right, the constitutional right to vote claims, um, I, you know, then um, no court has found that there's a right to early voting and that people in states without early voting um, should be entitled to early voting as a matter of a constitutional law. The issue that courts are being faced with is when states have taken made targeted early voting cuts, have they done so in order to discriminate against minorities? And there was evidence um, in um, after the 2010 election um, because um, African Americans in many states across the country used early voting um, at greater rates than white voters for the first time ever in 2008, and actually used them on targeted dates. They were sold to the poll drives on Sundays and on weekends, and a lot of states or in a number of the states that uh, implemented these restrictions, they targeted specifically those days where the polls to the polls drive were taking place to reduce early voting. Um, and and in, in some of the cases, um, like um, there is a lot of evidence that they actually expressly said, we are trying to um, reduce the amount of early voting happening in African-American communities. So um, the, the question there is a question of discrimination. Is it permissible for a state to reduce early voting um, targeting African Americans? Not does every American have a right to early vote a specific number of days. So that that's not the claim in those cases. And um, even the early voting and certainly the voter ID, it, it, these cutbacks, um, if they're left in place, I think would undoubtedly have a significant impact on the election. I think we have a really good um, case study um, of Florida. Um, in um, 2012, where there were um, dramatic cutbacks to early voting. Um, in fact, we brought um, a, a case in court, and the court actually found that those cutbacks um, were discriminatory um, and actually um, asked the state to reinstate some early voting hours, but we didn't get back the full early voting days that were cut. So there were still substantial reductions in early voting. Um, and um, Florida experienced massive long lines throughout its early voting period and, through, and on Election Day in 2012 that, that led to a huge uproar in the state. And um, there were subsequent studies done by um, academics across the country that actually found that the long lines that Florida experienced actually caused 200,000 people um, not to be able to vote, who showed up at the polls um, um, that, that would otherwise been able to vote. And so there's sort of a real, you know, concrete numerical impact of the early voting cutbacks in Florida, and those were actually mitigated um, in 2012. So I think that you could... Um, over, you could extrapolate that to the other states. Um, on voter ID requirements, I, I do disagree that there um, isn't evidence of turnout um, uh, uh, impacts. And in fact, there's a, an increasing number of studies that are finding a substantial um, uh, turnout um, reductions as a result of these strict new voter ID requirements, which are a very recent vintage. It takes a long time to study these things. They're massive studies. Um, you need to do it over multiple elections. You can't just compare two different races because turnout is caused by a variety of things, the weather, who the candidates are. So, um, And so a study just recently came out of the University of California at San Diego that found that states that have already implemented strict voter ID laws have seen huge drops in turnouts for certain minority groups, like a ten, more than 10% drop for Latinos, for example. 
um, and an overall drop in turnout of over 3% for Republicans and over 8% for Democrats. So there was a partisan skew as well. Um, the Nonpartisan Government Accountability Office did a study looking at photo ID um, requirements in Kansas and Tennessee in 2012 and actually did a sweeping analysis of all the prior studies and found um, that the turnout um, decreased because of the photo ID requirements in, um, by two to three percentage points in both of those states. And so I, I think that the, as the these laws start to be implemented, and they have only been in place for a very short period of time and in only a few states, this is a new requirement for most of our history. We did not have these kinds of requirements in place. The evidence is starting to pile up, but there's a real significant harm, and the numbers are very big. And um, and that, in part, like goes to... Um, you know, the motive point again, when you have such, uh, you know, large um, statistical disparities in our era of razor-thin elections, when we're so closely divided along partisan lines, they can make a real difference. And especially in places where um, members of particular racial groups are more likely to vote for certain political parties than others, um, you know, and a lot of courts have pointed this out, that, like, you know, there's a real motive for legislators, for partisans to try to take advantage of that and to try to game that to their advantage, um, to the disadvantage of voters. So um, I think it could be a real problem. Unfortunately, it looks like um, the many of these laws are going to be mitigated or even blocked before the 2016 elections, but there will, I think, be a lot of damage nonetheless. There are still going to be 15 states that are going to have restrictive laws in place for the first time, even some of them more less restrictive than they would have otherwise been um, in a presidential election. So that's going to happen. And we're still going to see um, some residual effects of the confusion that all of this change is causing, which will create problems on election day, undoubtedly. Thanks very much for that. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this fascinating debate. And Hans, uh, we'll start with you. Why Why is the constitutional debate about voter ID laws important, and why do you believe that these laws are, in fact, constitutional? Uh, We are one of the few Western democracies that does not uniformly uh, require a voter ID law. Um, uh, Europe does, even Mexico does, uh, and the Supreme Court laid out this argument very well. This is important to protect the integrity of the election process. The U.S., as the Supreme Court said, has a long history, uh, unfortunately, of voter fraud. It's been documented by journalists uh, and historians. And uh, it's also necessary to um, maintain and instill public confidence in the election. I mean, that's the same conclusion that the Carter-Baker Commission came to on this issue. Um, uh, These claims that, oh, yeah, the the data now shows it hurts turnout. Sorry, that is not true. uh, we have many years' worth of data in states like uh, Georgia and Indiana. Uh, those laws have been operating without any problems uh, for uh, more than eight years in each state. And if, in fact, there were such information, such evidence, such, such data, um, all of the groups who don't like uh, voter ID laws would have filed uh, newer lawsuits uh, making as-applied challenges to these laws. That hasn't happened. Um, Voter ID is very important, uh, as I said, to maintain the security of the election process. Uh, uh, the, the changes to early voting laws, again, uh, the claim that this will somehow affect the election, uh, we know that's not true uh, because a number of studies have actually looked at early voting, have compared early voting states to states without it, 
And the conclusion by a number of academics is that early voting actually hurts turnout, that it may uh, diminish turnout. Uh, and we certainly know that that was not the case in North Carolina, where the evidence was stark that uh, a change in the number of early voting days uh, not only didn't diminish turnout, but turnout, turnout actually increased substantially. I think this is an important debate. Uh, I think it's an important um, discussion. I believe, just like the Supreme Court said in 08, that uh, voter ID laws are perfectly constitutional. Um, they're, they're no different than the fact that to exercise other fundamental rights, uh, such as your Second Amendment right, you're going to need a government-issued photo ID. If you want to exercise your right to get married, almost every city and county requires a government-issued photo ID in order to get a, um, a marriage certificate. And if you want to uh, uh, exercise your right under the First Amendment to petition the government for a redress of grievances, and you want to show up at the U.S. Justice Department, which has been fighting these laws, uh, to talk to them about this issue, you won't get in the front door of the U.S. Justice Building unless you have a government-issued photo ID. Thank you so much for that. Wendy, uh, can you tell us why you think the debate about the constitutionality of voter ID laws is important and why you believe that they are unconstitutional? Sure. Um, you know, our, our voting system, our electoral system, is so critically important um, it's a, to our, our country and to our governance. And we, um, we need to have basic judicial oversight to make sure that the 50 state legislatures that are passing laws um, governing the rules of the game of voting are doing so fairly and in a non-discriminatory way. It matters so much that we look closely. And one of the things I do want to encourage um, your listeners to do is actually read the decisions themselves. At the level of generality as to whether or not voter ID is a good or bad idea, um, that, that's not the level at which the courts are deciding these cases. The courts are not making policy. They're looking at very specific, very restrictive laws, laws where the... Um, where the courts have said, you know, have been designed with surgical precision in some cases to target um, certain kinds of voters. In Texas, for example, it's not just that they require photo ID, it's that they allow concealed carry licenses, but don't allow people with government employment IDs or with um, student IDs who are disproportionately African-American to use those government-issued IDs to vote. So the devil is in the details and in the circumstances, the passage of these laws. And we saw recently a huge wave of laws. Um, we, we have not seen such massive changes to our voting laws um, as we have in recent years for decades and decades, really since before the Jim Crow era, and legislatively really for a century. So something fishy was going on across the country, and the courts are skeptical and looking closely behind some of these laws um, to, and um, in, in many cases are, you know, finding them lacking. And that's really what we want our courts to do is look closely. You know, is, are, are they actually designing these laws in a way that is um, you know, reasonably advancing state policy, or are they actually designing laws to advantage and disadvantage certain groups to, gain, uh, to try to manipulate the system and the outcome? And that's really what these cases are about, and that's what our courts are for. We want people to look closely. We don't want to just listen to the big talking points. 
and, and really conservative courts, liberal courts um, at all levels are, are coming to the same conclusion that there was something wrong with this recent push of laws that, that there was, this was not legitimate, that this was not fair to voters, and, and we need to start over. Thank you so much, Wendy Weiser and Hans von Sapolsky, for an illuminating and engaging discussion of one of the most hotly contested uh, issues involving democracy in America today. Wendy, Hans, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and our new senior fellow for constitutional studies, Tom Donnelly. I have to use this episode to say a very fond farewell to Daniele Evans, our outgoing senior fellow for constitutional studies. Daniele has done a spectacular job over the past two years supervising constitutional content here at the National Constitution Center. She's gone back to Yale Law School to complete a PhD in law, and we wish her the very best for a superb teaching career, which we know is before her. We were just so lucky to have Daniele and her wonderful insights about the Constitution. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at ConstitutionCenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and to our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network, Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center... I'm Jeffrey Rosen.